Welcome, comrades, to the weekly edition of ESG Now, where we explore the natural environment, our society, and a company's governance structure through the lens of the weekly news. I'm your host, Mike DeCebedo, and this week, Bentley Kaplan joins me to discuss the 3M company, the Camores company, and DuPont, and the issues around PFAS. And then Megan Eastman joins Bentley and me to discuss how wealthy Hong Kongers are going everywhere but the U.S. Thanks for joining us. Stay tuned. All right, so in a scene reminiscent to the rounding up of tobacco executives, three companies, the 3M Company, the Chemours Company, and DuPont, appeared before U.S. lawmakers early in September to discuss a hazardous class of chemicals called PFAS that are in firefighting foam, nonstick pans, Gore-Tex, food packaging, and around 99% of American bodies, which is what the company executives were brought to discuss. How did PFAS get into our environment and why, when the companies discovered how risky the chemicals were, did they decide to cover it up? I'm going to bifurcate our stack card today between the company and the chemical. And since Bentley is joining us and he covers 3M, I will do a quick ESG rating for 3M. Remember, at MSCI ESG Research, one of the things we do is rank companies based on their exposure to key ESG risk factors using a triple C to triple A scale. And we actually rank 3M at a triple A. Because A, it stopped manufacturing P- PFOS and PFOA, the major PFOS chemicals in the 1990s, and the company has made major efforts to institute extensive industry-leading environmental programs. And so on the chemical side, this has to do with how regulators in different areas deal with hazardous quote-unquote substances. And I say that in quotes because even the definition of what is or isn't a substance can get tricky. And I don't want to get wonky on you all, but I'll just say companies are in the business of introducing new molecular structures into our world and different regulators have different ways of dealing with those new molecules. Anyway, Bentley, as you know, the story is immense. The New York Times has done extensive reporting on how the story broke after a lawyer named Rob Bilot uncovered documents showing a massive cover-up at DuPont and 3M. And then there is a also an emer- uh, emerging story about Chemors, a company spun off of DuPont that's suing DuPont, claiming the company downplayed the cost of environmental liabilities when it spun off Comores and gave them all those environmental liabilities, i.e. DuPont was trying to hide its issues with PFAS. However, Bentley, I think it would be best if we discussed how companies adhere to and fail to adhere to regulation because the problems of the chemical have been well documented. And we really deal with how companies deal with regulation here at MSCI ESG Research. So could you take me through the high-level interplay between regulators and companies? There's a cynical cynical approach. And I think by and large, this is kind of what tends to happen. Um, And that is companies have bigger R&D budgets. They've got, you know, bigger you know, bigger budgets to look at their potential liabilities and they have a good handle on how things could come back on them. I think regulators tend to be much smaller with lower budgets um, and it takes them longer to find out, you know, what the bad things are. And and they have to be reactive because things don't get released. They can't study things until they're, you know, in some sense already active in the environment. So they're, they're always a little bit on the back foot. Um, and I think, you know, the cynical approach is to say, well, let's just run with this as long as we can. You know, reinventing our product line is going to be costly. It's going to be expensive. We're going to have to write off the R&D we spent in developing this chemical. And, you know, we can actually just pay lawyers to kick the can a few years down the road. 
Right. There's actually an, a cottage industry of lawyers that help companies comply with regulations. And there are stakeholders that benefit, obviously, from that industry. Because not only is a substance hard to define, but different regional regulators operate in different ways. I'll give you an example. In the U.S., we have the 1976 Toxic Substances Control Act, which says the EPA can test chemicals only when there have been proven evidences of harm, which is a background looking type of regulation and allows companies to basically regulate themselves until harm can be proven. Conversely, in the EU, there's this Registration, Evaluation, Authorization, and Restriction of Chemicals, or REACH Act, that is a forward-looking regulation because it looks at the potential impact on human health and the environment and forces companies to go through a much more rigorous chemical registration than the EPA does. So I'm curious how, when you're looking at 3M, Bentley, these different regulatory regimes come into your analysis of global companies such as 3M. So, you know, the way we look at that is to say, well, company's got, you know, 80% of its operations or its sales are in the EU, and therefore it's going to have a very high risk of whether, you know, of of, uh, lawsuits or litigation against it. And then we look at whether a company is managing those risks pretty well. So in other words, does it have, you know, programs of monitoring toxicity of substances? What's its environmental management program like? Um, And, you know, that that does tell you part of the story. I think the, the challenge is always knowing how these companies are are running internally. And I think that's something that's come out of this 3M story is, you know, the, the internal company communications, um, you know, and and it's, uh, it's some of the details are, are pretty, you know, uh, stick out in your mind quite a lot. I think there was there was um, some information about, you know, pregnant 3M employees being kept away from these PFAS chemicals because they knew there was something potentially wrong with them, you know, which indicates a very different internal and ex- external company dynamic. So I think, you know, 3M's that kind of it's it's a good it's a good case case study for how you know, you know, what a company is actually doing is is a little bit limited from their disclosure, you know, and getting that inside angle into how it operates is um, is a challenge. And I think that's something that maybe is a question for governance rather than you know what a company's environmental programs are like. Um, you know, what happens? It's the it's the acid test. What happens if a company finds out? One of its big money spinners is is dangerous. You know, what do they do then? I think that's you know that's the acid test for ESG and for companies. Yeah, it's weird when when they contradict privately versus publicly, though, because it reminds me of if if you read diplomatic cables saying one thing, and then and then you hear the public speeches or you read the public speeches, sorry, that basically contradict what these diplomats have talked about behind doors, and. I guess it kind of reminds me of what you would need to do as an analyst in those situations because 3M didn't disclose its findings on PFAS to the public, nor did DuPont show um, what was going on. So how do you move away from just using company data as the end-all, be-all for your analysis? What else do you have to take into account when you're looking at these types of massive companies with huge product lines and possible environmental malfeasance? Yeah, so I mean the 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 company disclosure is is one is just one aspect. In other words, like their environmental management programs, you know what policies they have, and you know which parts of the company are, are responsible for their operations. But you know about two thirds, you know uh, plus minus of the company's assessment is based on uh, third party information, which would be you know could be uh, from regulators. So the toxic emissions a company will release is a big part of that. Um, but in particular, for a case like this, we rely on what we call our controversies data, which is 
um, when there are allegations against the company that are coming from consumers or from regulators, that will then roll into the company's rating as well. So, um, you know, even if those cases don't necessarily, you know, result in massive fines, they can impact on the company's rating. To be the devil's advocate on our own system, I think the, the challenge with using controversies is that it, it tends to be backward looking, especially in a case like this, you know, where the damage was actually 10, 20, 30 years ago. Um, and 3M might be a very different company now to what it was then, um, which is, I'm sure, one of the arguments they'll use um, is that, yes, this is a legacy issue. And, you know, going forward, this will this kind of thing will never, ever, ever happen again um, until it does. Yeah, I mean, to ask a cynical question, how, how do you trust a company after it does something like this? It is reported that internal documents made public by lawsuits show that the right people at 3M and DuPont knew about the problem and they just kind of were like, all right, well, steady on, continue. Uh, how, how do you get to a point where you can trust a company again after after a scandal like this is broke? It's difficult to to be completely objective in, in, in a company analysis, which is why we have a really um you know really a really big complex model so it's very you know you can't really sway it on your personal opinion um and i think you know one of the frustrations is in you know when we look at how a company is going to be affected by a controversy like that we have to deal with reality um and there are you know many large shocking cases that are similar to this that are happening you know in well-regulated environments like the us or in europe um, where it doesn't necessarily mean the end of a company. Um, if you look at, um, you know, Volkswagen is a great example of the kind of, you know, systemic, um, not sort of not corrupt culture, but definitely one of internal secrets and seeing how far they could push things. Um, and that has, you know, from an ESG, from an ethical perspective, huge problems. But, you know, the company stock took a took a hit at first, but, it, you know, seems to have recovered since then. Um, so, you know, when we try and reflect reality, it's difficult because we don't always like what reality is telling us. Um, and, I, you know, I think that's something that we might see changing going forward. You know, consumers might become um, more powerful. There could be, you know, uh, a change in regulator behavior, particularly around cases like this, when it's just so far beyond the pale that, you know, they have no choice but to, to ramp up pressure on companies. But for now, you know, we just have to deal with what with, the, with how reality plays out. Okay, so for our second story, Bloomberg News is reporting that as protests in Hong Kong intensified this summer, wealthy Hong Kongers left for Australia, Canada, Taiwan, Singapore, basically anywhere other than the U.S., which is interesting because the U.S. is home to more Hong Kongers than any country outside of mainland China. And actually, Bloomberg is reporting that many want to leave. So this story made us at MSCI ESG Research think about labor shortages specifically labor shortages for highly technical industries like the semiconductor industry. And so for our stack card today, I thought I would quote from an industry report authored by Sipingo on the labor shortages in the semiconductor industry. Because another thing that we do, I should note at MSCI ESG Research, is we write these excellent reports on various industries under our purview. And in Sipingo's report, she notes that the semiconductor industry needs electrical engineers to operate. However, According to the Semiconductor Industry Association Workforce Roundtable 2018 report, foreign nationals make up nearly 80% of current electrical engineering graduates in the U.S. Meaning if immigrants leave the U.S., the semiconductor industry will have some problems to deal with. And so, Megan, how do we look at labor issues such as this from an ESG angle? 
As it pertains to company risk, this sort of geopolitical foible must be difficult to digest, right? Well, I think you can zoom out a little bit and think of it really as access to talent, talent competition more broadly. And semiconductors is hardly the only industry where this is important. You know, you see it in other sorts of tech and, and other kind of specialized industries that require specialized talent. And it starts to, you need to start looking at what the companies are doing, because when the competition is stiff, then they need to start kind of one-upping each other in order to be able to recruit people amongst those that are available. So part of the issue is about who's available and whether the pool is smaller than it should be or could be. But then within the pool that is available, you're looking at how well companies are doing at recruiting and retaining. And, you know, that has to do with pay and it has to do with benefits and perks and opportunities for professional development and diversity and so on. You know, whether they're tapping into all the pools of qualified people that are available or whether they've kind of got some preconceived notions about where they should be looking and might actually be mis- missing out on populations that you know could be good employees. You know, you can just think of, you know, a single company and the world as its talent pool. And there are there are many, you know, obstacles to getting access to that talent. And then when you have a trade war like you do now, and all of a sudden, you know, people aren't so keen to move into the US, that's just an extra factor that's complicating, you know, accessing that talent. So that, you know, the questions for companies become around, you know, what, how happy are their staff that are working there? And then also, you know, what is their talent pipeline like? You know, have they got good recruitment processes, but but especially the, like, the, you know, the, the brand of the company as well. Like, what does it mean to work there? Um, I, when I was speaking to uh, to SK around um, unionization and, and South Korea, I asked about Samsung because they were having some, you know, some union pressures. Um, and she said, you know, just despite some of that, uh, that negative press, the, the prestige of working at Samsung was still very high. Um, so that brand value of the company can go a long way, you know, and, and, with, and, and essentially what you're asking there is of the, of the sort of U.S. companies who need talent, which ones are, are coming out on top and which ones are likely to start losing talent fastest. Um, and then it becomes a relative game. That's definitely an important one. Um, but then the other one, I, I hinted at this earlier, is really about where companies are looking for talent and whether they're looking in all of the places where it might exist. We did some interesting research here looking at talent pools in the United States, uh, specifically through a racial lens. And what we, what our colleagues who worked on this did is they took U.S. companies that disclosed the racial makeup of their workforce, and then they mapped the individual locations uh, of all those companies' facilities in the United States and looked at census data to figure out what the composition of the surrounding communities looked like. So basically the available pool by race and also by education level. So figuring out at least roughly kind of who's qualified. And found that a lot of companies, especially in tech, perhaps not coincidentally, were under tapping minority talent, uh, which to anyone who is in the United States probably doesn't come as a great surprise. But it does suggest that there might be pools available to companies that they're not fully tapping into. And so that that might be kind of a viable avenue to explore when the usual pools start either drying up or becoming inaccessible. Yeah, and correct me if I'm wrong, the broad consensus is if you do not have a variety of minds in your boardroom, in your company, everywhere, you're going to have less innovative capacity than if you did. And that's big for the semiconductor industry because Sipping found that the semiconductor and equipment industry it has the second highest R&D, is the second highest R&D spender among all ESG-rated industries in our purview, second only to the biotechnology industry. 
And she also found that the U.S. semiconductor industry relies heavily on foreign talents in key roles within those R&D functions. And she even showed this great chart that showed R&D projects were significantly down in 2018 due to the labor crisis in the U.S. and issues with immigration. Yeah, that's really interesting. Uh, so that what you're getting at, Mike, is is kind of a little bit of a, a step kind of further down the, the logic trail here where first we're talking about just getting access to talent at all. But then when we think about diversity in the, the talent acquisition and retention process, yes, there is a lot of research. We've done some ourselves. It's also coming out of the academic world, looking at diverse groups in general, being more creative and making better decisions. Um, and in some research that we did about a year ago, we were looking at companies recognized as innovators and, and found that indeed they did tend to have better diversity policies, more diverse leadership, that sort of thing. So that's something to think about as well. It, it you know maybe like an added benefit to exploring these pools of talent or aspects of the of the talent pool that have not been fully tapped. All right, that's it for the week. I wanted to thank Bentley and Megan for joining me, Saping for writing such excellent research that I can then steal and pretend I'm smart with. And thank you for listening. Don't forget to rate and review us and subscribe and just enjoy yourself in general. That would be great. Thanks and talk to you next week. The MSCI ESG Research Podcast is provided by MSCI Inc.'s subsidiary, MSCI ESG Research LLC, a registered investment advisor under the Investment Advisors Act of 1940. And this recording and data mentioned herein has not been submitted to and or received approval from the United States Securities and Exchange Commission or any other regulatory body. The analysis discussed should not be taken as an indication or guarantee of any future performance, analysis, forecast, or prediction. The information contained in this recording is not for reproduction in whole or in part without prior written permission from MSCI ESG Research. None of the discussion or analysis put forth in this recording constitutes an offer to buy or sell or a promotion or recommendation of any security, financial instrument, or product or trading strategy. Further, none of the information is intended to constitute investment advice or recommendation to make or refrain from making any kind of investment decision and may not be relied on as such. The information provided here is as is, and the user of the information assumes the entire risk of any use it may make or permit to be made of the information. Thank you.